Good morning, everyone. So my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at eFree. If you were a guest with us this morning, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome uh, to our church. want you to know that one of the driving principles of our church is that every person matters. And so we hope that you experience that, whether it's through the greeting and the ushering, uh, through the message worship, that through every part of it, we hope that you experience that you matter. Because we believe that you matter to God, and because you matter to God, you matter to us. And so um, we are going to continue our series, as Cody said, in the Gospel of John. And so we're looking at the book that John wrote um, and looking at what he has to say about Jesus. So he is a firsthand eyewitness of Jesus' ministry, of what God was doing, um, what Jesus was doing. And he records that for us, that we would come to trust and believe and receive Jesus as Lord and as Savior. And so as we begin with that this morning, I want you to know that I'm angry. And I've been angry since I woke up this morning. That when I woke up, my teacher, he said that we're going to go out to the country, we're going to baptize. He said, eat breakfast and pack a lunch because we're going out and we might not come back for a little bit. So I ate lunch, I ate my breakfast, I put my lunch in a bag and I slung it over my shoulder and I gathered with this small group of people. And I'm angry because this group used to be a lot larger. And then a little while ago, my teacher pointed at a man named Jesus, and he said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And immediately, people started to jump ship. Immediately, people stopped following my teacher, John the Baptist, and started following this Jesus. And then I'm angry, and I'm frustrated, because we keep shrinking and shrinking. I'm frustrated because the crowds, which once were this mighty river flowing from Jerusalem and the surrounding area to come see what John had to say to come to be baptized, are now this little trickle. And so as we're walking out into the countryside of Judea, and I'm walking over this dirt path with rocks and pebbles, the past few weeks have been this pebble in my shoe that I just can't kick out. I'm angry and I'm frustrated because Jesus has come after John, that John was here first, John was baptizing, John was doing this, and Jesus come after, and now he's surpassed him. The crowds are bigger with him. It's frustrating. I'm angry because I left a home and a community and a job to follow John into the wilderness because I thought it was going to be worth it. And at first it was. When the crowds were big, it was worth it. I was validated for my sacrifice. But now the crowds are shrunk, and I'm wondering, what have I done? Why am I here? We get where we're going, and there's a crowd. And for a moment, there's optimism in my heart. The moment there's joy that finally they realize Jesus is not the way. That they are coming back to the original. They're coming back to John. But then I hear a voice. I hear his voice. Jesus' voice talking from the middle of this group of people. And anger burns in my belly, and I leave this little group of followers, and I march towards Jesus. So this morning, we're going to talk about this instant where John the Baptist had some followers, some students who had been following him, and they get frustrated. They get angry that Jesus is having all the crowds come to them. He's angry, and they're angry that Jesus is attracting the people. They're angry that he's baptizing people. But John the Baptist has this phenomenal response to his followers in that moment. And we have something to learn from that response because 
I think that myself and maybe a lot of you are much closer to John's followers and their frustration with Jesus than we'd like to think. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for your love and your goodness. I thank you for your steadfast kindness, God. You are merciful to us. And Lord, I pray for all of us this morning, God, that you would give us eyes to see you in the text. God, you would give us ears to hear your voice. And God, you would give us hearts to receive your message. Lord, would you help me to be clear and concise? Would you help me to reveal what you have placed here, God? And God, I pray that you would help us to accept our roles as those who point to the Savior, not as the Savior. And God, that we would point those we love to you and trust that you are going to care for them. Pray this all in your son's name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 26 is where we're going to start. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to John. John is in the back of your Bible in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. So if you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, just go to the right, you'll find John. If you get to Acts or Romans, Corinthians, you're too far to the right, go to the left, you will find John. Before we read these verses, I need to let you know that there's some confusing uh, difficulties in the passage. And the biggest one is that we have two Johns. We have John the Baptist and we have John the author. So John the author is writing about all of this. He's recording it for us. And John the Baptist is the one who's going to appear in it. And that can just be confusing because I'm going to say John, and I'm going to do my best to say John the Baptist when it's John the Baptist, and I'll say John the author when it's John the author. But I want you to know there's two Johns. They're not one person doing both roles. So verse 22, it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. So Jesus takes his disciples and they go out into the countryside and they find this body of water to baptize people. They begin baptizing people who come to them. Now what you need to know is that in John chapter 4, we're told that Jesus himself doesn't do any of the baptizing. His disciples do it, but Jesus is getting credit for it. And then verse 23, it says, Now John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. So you have John and his followers also baptizing. Now, I think they're baptizing in the same location, and I think at the very least they're close enough to see each other, but I think they're close enough to actually hear each other. And so they're both in the same place baptizing, which means that their ministries overlap. For a short amount of time, their ministries overlap where both Jesus and John are ministering at the same time, which is surprising. I didn't realize that until I was reading, studying this passage. But their, their ministries overlap. And then verse 24, this was before John was put in prison. So if you know John the Baptist's story, um, John is later going to be put in prison because there's a guy named King Herod. And King Herod is the ruler over this region that John the Baptist finds himself in, and Herod is not a good guy. And so his brother has this wife, and Herod wants the wife, and so he takes her. And John goes, that's shady. You can't be doing that. And he tells King Herod and everybody else that what Herod is doing is wrong, and he needs to stop. And Herod's like, well, I'm the king. I'll do what I want. And you're going to go to jail. And so he throws John in jail, but that hasn't happened yet. John, the author, wants us to realize that this is all that we're reading is happening before John's in jail. Verse 25 says, An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. So this argument happens between John's followers and somebody. We're not told who the specific person is, so John seems to think that it's not important for us to know. And he says that it's about ceremonial washing, but he doesn't get into the details. He doesn't go, well, there's this guy over here who was saying this, and then John's followers were over here saying that. So we just know there's an argument. And then verse 26 says, they, being John's followers, came to John and said to him, 
Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Like they're frustrated that Jesus has shown up and that he's baptizing people and that people are bypassing them to go to Jesus to get baptized. They're like, this is ridiculous. Like that's our thing. We're the people who do the baptisms. Like you're John the Baptist. Like his name isn't Jesus the Baptist, it's just Jesus. Like they should be coming to us. And they're frustrated. And in their frustration, they have turned Jesus into a rival. They have made him a rival to John and they're mad that he's surpassing John. And what's interesting is that they should be listening to what they're saying because when they're arguing, they say, teacher or rabbi, you know the guy who was with you on the other side? The guy you pointed at and you're like, this is the savior of the world. He is the Messiah. You know that guy? He showed up and he's baptizing and everybody wants to talk to him. No one wants to talk to us. Like you should go, yes, of course. Like if there's two lines of people and the savior's over here and some random guy's over here, like people are not getting in his line. They're going to talk to the savior. But they're like, but he should come to, they should come to our line. They're frustrated. They're angry, and they're complaining that Jesus is stealing their thunder. Verse 27, John replies to them. He responds to them, and his response is awesome. He says, to this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. So John gets them together, and he says, guys, you know that I can only do the role that God gives me to do. That God gives each of us a role, and my role is not to be the Messiah. My role is to, is to point to him, is to prepare the way for him. Like, I have been very clear with you guys this entire time, I am not the Messiah. I wasn't like going, I'm not the Messiah, wink, wink. I wasn't doing that to you. I was going, I am not the Messiah. This guy over here, Jesus, is the Messiah. Why are you so mad that he's fulfilling his role and I'm fulfilling my role? So then he goes on and he gives them this illustration, this example. Verse 29, he says, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. So, he gives them this example of this wedding party. And before we do that, I, I want to give you a picture of what I think is happening. I could be wrong. But I think that usually when you have a group of people that are frustrated, they choose a spokesperson for the group. And like, you go talk to them and you tell them why we're mad. So I think there's probably one guy that has come to lay all the complaints of the group about what Jesus is doing. And I think John puts his arm around this guy and says, hey, you've been to a wedding. When you go to a wedding, the bride goes to the bridegroom or to the groom. The bride does not go to the best man. It goes to the groom. And then he says, the friend of the best man who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And I wonder if in that moment they are so close together that he pauses and in the silence of their conversation, you can hear Jesus speaking. You can hear him teaching to the crowds that have left John to go follow Jesus. And he says, that joy is mine and is now complete. 
And then he points, he must become greater. I must become less. It's like, do you get it? I am not the groom. I am not the Messiah. He is. They need to go past me to him. My role is just to point to him. So he gives them this, this example of a wedding party. And he says, when you go to a wedding party, the bride goes to the bridegroom. The bride goes to the groom. It's like, so just pretend for a moment that you went to a wedding. And I've, I think I've only seen this in movies. I don't know if they actually do it in the actual ceremonies. But you have in the movies, there's a pastor or an officiator. And they're standing up there and they go, now, if there's anyone that should know why this woman should not marry this man, speak down forever or forever hold your peace. Can you imagine if in that moment, the best man steps out and goes, yeah, I have some things I'd like to say. Why she should marry me. You'd be like, what? This is the worst wedding ever. Like, this guy is the worst, bride, the worst best man of all time. Like, how did they not vet this guy to find out that he was gonna do this? Like, this is ridiculous. And John's going, you want me to do that? Like, that's what you want me to do right now. You're coming to me going, the wedding's occurring. We want you to break it up and try to marry the bride. It's like, I'm not going to do that. That is not my role. My role is to be the best man, to point to the groom and rejoice, celebrate when the bride comes to the groom. He says, all these people you see, these people are the bride, and he's the groom. He's come for them. I've not come for them. I've come to point them to him. So here's what John shows us. He shows us that a humble person finds fulfillment in their God-given role. A humble person finds fulfillment in their God-given role. That John humbles himself. He doesn't say, I'm greater or better than anyone. He doesn't try to take the role of the Messiah. There's not a moment when all the crowds are coming. He's like, well, maybe I might actually be the Messiah. He knows his role. And he takes that role. And when the people leave him, he rejoices because he has fulfilled his role and so he finds fulfillment in it. And he can say that Jesus must become greater while he becomes less. That he can rejoice as he sees Jesus becoming greater as he becomes less and his ministry shrinks and Jesus grows. He can rejoice. And where John the Baptist excels at this, I stumble and I fall all the time that I stumble and I fall at decreasing why Jesus increases. Now, you will never hear me say with my mouth that Jordan must become greater and Jesus must become less. You're never gonna hear me say that. But if you watched my life and you studied, what is my reaction when I come across someone who is hurting, that needs help, and I can't fix it? What you'll see is that I experience despair that I experience this frustration that I can't fix their life. Whether it's my wife, whether it's my kids, whether it's a youth group student or a parent or somebody else, when there's this moment of someone comes and they have an issue, I want to become the savior. I want to become the Messiah. I want to become greater in this person's life and I want Jesus to become less. I don't literally want him to do it, but that's how it functions. Is that Jesus is becoming less because I'm becoming greater. I'm going, don't, I don't need to tell you about Jesus. I can fix your problem. I can be clever enough. I can be smart enough. I have enough experience to fix your problem. You don't need Jesus. You need me. And so in that moment, I become greater and Jesus becomes less. And that's not John the Baptist's way. And the result of that is despair. The result is despair. That if you want to know, have you been trying to be someone's savior, you just go, do I experience despair when I go to sleep at night? 
when I, I lay down in bed and I sit there and I agonize over this person and their situation, and if I had just said this, maybe they would have done this. Or if I had just told them that, maybe it would have been different. Or if I, I had done something, or I hadn't let them go, or I hadn't done this or that, then maybe it would be different. And there's this despair. Or it's just, I don't know what to do. I can see they have a problem, but I don't know how to solve it. What am I going to do? And so you toss and you turn trying to solve their problem because you feel like they're your savior. you're their savior. You feel like, I have to fix their life. And so there's moments in my life where there's this despair of like, why am I so downcast? And the reason is because I've become someone's savior. And I am a terrible savior because that's not my role. That is not what God has asked me to do. That is not what he's asked me to be. He has asked me to fulfill the role of pointing to him who is the savior. He's asked me to fill the role of pointing and saying, I can't rescue you, I can't save you, but there is one who can, and his name is Jesus. I can pray for you, I can walk alongside you, I can hug you, I can sit with you in this, I won't abandon you, but I cannot fix you. But there is one who can, and his name is Jesus. But if I elevate myself above that role and I try to grab a hold of being the Messiah, being the Savior for this person, I will experience despair because I am a terrible Savior. So God, Jesus, must become greater in the lives of our kids, in the lives of our spouse, in the lives of our friends, coworkers, whoever it is. Jesus has to become greater in their lives. They have to see him as great and awesome and able to save, able to rescue. And we have to become less. That if they think we can do it, we're going to disappoint them and we're going to experience despair. So then John goes, uh, so then in John 3, 31 through 36, the Bible scholars disagree about who should get credit for this passage. That some of them say it's John the Baptist, that he keeps talking to these people that he's having this disagreement with. And some would say, no, it's John the author. And John the author is giving commentary on what he's watching happen between Jesus and John. And it's hard to tell who it is, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Whether it's John the author or John the Baptist, the words are just as true. And all they're doing is comparing and contrasting Jesus and John the Baptist. And when they use John the Baptist, really, it can be all of us. So here's what, here's what he says. It says, the one who comes from above as above all, the one who is from the earth, belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. So John is saying that there is one who comes down from heaven. And the one who comes from a, down from heaven is above everybody. He is above all. He, there is no one like him. He is unique. And then there's everybody else. That John the Baptist is from the earth, and so he speaks as one from the earth. So Jesus is God and was with God and knows what God speaks. He knows what God's saying. He knows what God's doing. He doesn't have to say, I think this is what God wants to do, or I think this is what God's saying. He says, this is what God is saying. This is what God is doing. This is what God wants. But the rest of us who are from earth, we have this perspective as someone from earth, so we have to say, I think this is what God's saying. Or I think this is what God wants. Or it appears this is what God is doing. But I can't say with the confidence that Jesus has. And that's the same case for John the Baptist. And so they're making this case because there could have been some people when John, is, John the author is writing this who are still following John the Baptist. They still haven't given up on him and moved on to Jesus where they're supposed to be. They're still hoping that John the Baptist is going to um, be some sort of 
savior possibly or that he was some sort of savior. And so they're making this comparison and contrast and they're showing that Jesus is far greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a role and he fulfilled that role but he doesn't hold the candle to Jesus. And then 32, it says, he testifies to what he has seen and heard but no one accepts his testimony. That Jesus... He came, he came down from heaven to say, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, this is what I know. That it's what he's seen, it's what he's experienced, it's firsthand information. This reminds me of John 1 where he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and he came to his people and his people rejected him. That they heard his testimony but they didn't receive it. Then John goes on, he says, verse 33, whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For those who put Jesus' words into practice, that they live them out, what they experience is that he's telling the truth. That it really does produce life change. It really does produce change and transformation. Now, it may not happen as fast as we want it to. In my life, it's rarely, if ever, happened as fast as I want it to. I want it to be overnight. I want it to be instantaneous. I want to say, God, would you change this thing? And the next day it would be changed. And rarely, if ever, has that ever happened. It's been this long path of God shaping obedience and slowly, sh- shape, sh- slowly changing me. And where I wanted to be overnight, it took years, maybe a decade, for me to begin to see the change I was hoping to see in a night. But God was faithful. God did do what he said he would do. His word was successful. It did have the impact he said it would have. So he says, if you put it into practice, you will experience that it's truthful. Verse 34 says, For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. That he sent Jesus to speak the words that he's given him to speak, and he's done it. That what Jesus shares is not his own opinions. He shares what God the Father has given him to share. And then 35, it says, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. That he's placed it all in Jesus' hands. He didn't place it in my hands. He didn't place it in your hands. He placed it in Jesus' hands. That God the Father gave him everything. He didn't give me everything. And so when I strive to be someone's Savior and I want to rescue them and redeem them or transform them or change them or fix their situation, I am not using everything that God's given me because he gave it all to Jesus. And so I'm going to be frustrated and I'm going to be insufficient to save or to rescue because I'm a terrible Savior. Because I was not given the role of being a Savior. I was given the role of pointing to the one who is the Savior, Jesus, who has been given everything into his hands to rescue, to redeem, to transform, to change, to help. And so I have to point to him who has been given everything in his hands by his Father who loves him. That's the role that he's been given. Then verse 36, it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That whoever believes in the Son, they have eternal life. Has, not will have, not hopes to have, not maybe one day, not after they die, has right now eternal life. That you put your trust, your faith in Jesus, you surrender your life to him, or you say, I'm done doing my own thing, I'm going to follow you to the best of my ability. I'm going to fall at times, I'm going to struggle at times, but I'm following you to the best of my ability, and that moment you receive eternal life. It's not a, it's not a future 
reality that you hope for after you die. It is a present experience right now. But the trick is learning how do we experience it? How do we learn to hear God's voice? How do we learn to experience him in our everyday life? How do we learn to walk with him? This is how we experience eternal life here and now. And that's what we're learning, that's what we're working towards, is how do I experience this life with Jesus, with God, right now? Not this thing I hope to experience after I die, but how do I get it right now? Then he goes on, he says, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. He says, if you reject Jesus, he says, you say, I don't need a Savior or you say, I'll be my own savior, or I'm gonna to look to somebody else to be my savior, he says, you will not have eternal life. You will not have life. What you actually will experience was God's wrath as it remains upon you. Now, I, I think that's there to point you back to the reality that you need a savior. That in our lives, when we come up short, we realize I am insufficient to fix this thing. I'm insufficient to fix this person. I'm insufficient to do this. It shouts, I need a savior. I need somebody else to step in and rescue me because I can't rescue myself. And so the wrath is there to point you to the reality that you need a savior, that I need a savior. I'm not the savior. You are not the savior, not for yourself, not for your kids, not for your spouse, not for your friends. And so we gotta point to the one who is Jesus. So what we see What we see from John here is that a humble person finds life through trusting Jesus to be their savior. That a humble person finds life by trusting Jesus to be their savior. By saying, I can't be my own savior. By turning to Jesus to be their savior, they actually find life. Because in my own life, when I have tried to be my savior, or I've tried to be someone else's savior, what I again have experienced is despair that maybe there's small moments where I feel like I did it and that I have this pride that I'm awesome and I'm great, but the vast majority of the time, what I find instead is despair because I realize I can't fix them. If I'm their savior, they're in a lot of trouble because I can't come through for them. I can't rescue them. I can't redeem them. There's nothing I can do for them in this situation. I can't transform their heart. I can't change them. I just have to watch and know that I can't do it which leads to despair. But if we humble ourselves and we say, I can't be the savior, that is not the role God's called me to, it's not the role God's given me. Instead, what he's given me is to be the person who points, the person who walks beside, the person who cares for them and, and loves them, but ultimately, there is a limitation on what I can do. That person can rest at night. And they rest because they can say, God is gonna continue to work while I sleep. While I take a break, he's gonna to continue to work on the heart of this person that I love. He's gonna to continue to work in the life of this person that needs help. He is going to continue to work and he will not stop working. Now that's not a promise that all things are gonna work out exactly how you want them to work out, but God is going to give his best effort. That he is a great and a good savior and he is able and willing to save. You know, I think about uh, my son. So my son's five, and there's times where he like crashes on his bike. 
And right now, it's pretty easy to console him. Then he crashes, you get a Band-Aid, you put it over his skin knee, you give him a hug, you give him a kiss, and he's fine. You send him on his way. And in those moments, I can convince myself that I saved him, convince myself that I rescued him. But the reality is, I have no ability to rescue him. I have no ability to heal his knee. I could put a Band-Aid on it, but I have no ability to make it scab over and make it heal. I have no ability to do that. That if it decided it wasn't going to do that, there's nothing I could do. I can take him to a doctor, but I can't fix him. But man, it feels like you do in that moment. It feels like you saved the day, like you're the hero. But then what happens is they get into high school. They get into college. And they have these deep issues that you can't fix. And you were the hero when they were five, but now they're 15 or they're 25. And they're on this path that you can't change, you can't fix. And if you are convinced that you're the savior then you're going to experience despair. Because I could fix it when you were five, but I can't fix it now. But in reality, whatever they're going through, it's this big flashing sign that says to them that they need a Savior. And it says to us that I'm not the Savior. Like, you just think for a moment about how when you skin your knee, you can put a band-aid on it. You don't go to the doctor, like, I have a skinned knee. What do I do? You put a band-aid on it. But if you break your arm and it's like dangling over here, most of us, maybe some of you are like, I'll just snap it back in. It'll be fine. But most of us are like, okay, this is beyond my abilities. I'm going to go to the doctor because I know I can't fix this. And so, so many of us, we have people we love or we have our problems ourselves that we can't fix. And those are there to point us to the fact that we need a Savior. And it's not us. So we turn to Jesus who was great and willing and able to rescue, that he came down from heaven. He left paradise willingly to enter into earth, to become like us, to experience pain, tired, sickness, all these things. That he lives this perfect life, and the result is that he's beaten and mocked and spit on and whipped and nailed to a cross while people hurl insults at him and they watch him suffocate and die. For us, because he loves us. And he loves each and every one of us. And he is the Savior. He is incredible. He is amazing. And he is worthy of our hope. He is worthy of our trust. And he is able to save. He is able to rescue. He is able. And so we become the people who point to him. And as we point to him, we find life and we find fulfillment because. We can have these moments where we have the temptation of wanting to become the Savior, and we can say, I am not the Savior. That I know I want to see this change happen in this person, but I am not the Savior. I cannot, I cannot make that change occur. But I will pray for them. I will point them to Jesus, and I will wait for the Savior who is able to work in their life. And that is a daily battle. Because there are so many people we love dearly, and we wish we could reach in and transform and change and fix but we can't. And if we choose to try, we choose to take on that role, then we will become a rival of Jesus. And what we will show our kids, what we will show our friends, what we will show our family is you don't really need more of Jesus, you need more of me. What you don't really need is Jesus to become greater, you need me to become greater and him to become less. And so I invite you would you join in pointing to him and saying, he needs to become greater and I need to become less. That as your mom, as your dad, I need to become less in your life. That you see me as less impressive and him as more impressive. 
as your spouse, I need to become less impressive and he needs to become more impressive. That if you think I'm going to be able to save you, I'm just going to disappoint you and you're going to get frustrated. So if you're like me and you're tired of trying to be the savior, you're tired of trying to fix people, you're tired of trying to do it all, I invite you to come to him and say, I give it up. I will join you in pointing to you. I will point people to you. I will encourage them to you. I will pray with them. I will walk with them. But I can't save them. I cannot rescue them. I cannot redeem them. Only you can do that. Even in the situation my son or my daughter is in right now, only you can wake them up to the situation they're in. You have to do it, Jesus. Would you do it? And I'm going to rest knowing that my role is to point and to tell and your role is to save. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for my friends here in the auditorium. God, I thank you that we have a great God in you. And so we don't need to be the Savior. We can just tell people about you. We can point to you. We can share you with them. And as we do that, you can rescue, you can redeem, you can change. And God, I pray that you would give us patience and endurance as we wait. That God, for so many of us, we want to see it now. We want to see this instantaneous change in our kids and her spouse, and her friends. But God, you, you're a God who is long-suffering, that you walk with us for the long term, not just for a quick fix, but you are with us in this for the long haul. So God, I pray you would help us to have the role of a humble servant who points to a great God and say, he is the one who can help you. He is the one who can rescue you. He is the one who can save. All I can do is tell you about him. All I can do is hug you. All I can do is walk with you. God, would you please help us to fulfill that role? And as we do that, would you give us life? Would you give us fulfillment? Would you give us hope and help? Pray this all in your son's name.